2 Kings chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha, said, and Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. The Lord was gracious to them, and he had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would not destroy them nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. May God bless the preaching of his word. There are certain days in one's life that become defining moments, such as one's wedding day, often graduation day, one's baptism, one's death. They are momentous days in which circumstances occur that have a great bearing, not only on our lives, but often the lives of others as well. We have in our text today a defining day in the life of King Jehoash. It would be a momentous day, a day not only in his own life, but in the life of the kingdom as well. It was a day in which Elisha was on his deathbed. And on this particular day, there are going to be events that take place that are going to affect the nation for years to come. 
The arrangement of our text this morning is a bit odd. The elements of it are quite common. First, we are given a summation of Jehoash's reign in chapter 13, verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. It's important to note that the Joash of chapter 13 is different from the Joash of chapter 12. Uh, I just point that out, and it's very infusing at times, but important that we keep the kings straight for, on more than one occasion, we have the same name repeated, but it applies to different kings. Next, we have the typical spiritual evaluation of the kingship. This is a negative one, verse 11. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Third, there is a typical mention of there being more material concerning the reign that is recorded in the book of Second Chronicles. At the end of verse 12 it says, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And then there's a reference to the king's death, verse 13. So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. But now, after having given us this summation of the king's life and reign, our text focuses upon one single day in the life of Jehoash. This one day is going to speak volumes about his kingship and also the future of the nation of Judah. This one day is monumental. It is the only day that this particular portion of scripture gives us in the life of Joash. That's how significant it is. So what can we learn about this one day? Well, first, as the scene opens, Elisha is sick and dying, verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. At the, this time, Elisha was quite old, and the end of his life and ministry was very near. According to Matthew Henry's reckoning, approximately 45 years have passed from the last time that we've heard anything about Elisha to this point. There's 45 years of silence about Elisha's life and ministry. It was chapter after chapter of what was taking place in Elisha's life, and then we have a hiatus, and we're looking at other things, and now we come back, and we are revisiting Elisha, but this time he's on his deathbed. The king's visit is the focal point of the narrative. The king showed deference for Elisha in coming to meet Elisha, verse 14. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to meet him. It was quite unusual that a king would visit the home to a prophet in order to pay homage to that prophet. Here is a king who shows respect for and deference to Elisha in Elisha's dying days. 
He stands in stark contrast to the kings that we have seen before that wanted to bring about a speedy end to Elisha's life. They wanted to kill him. But this king comes down to show his allegiance and respect in the time of Elisha's death. The king showed real emotion in association with Elisha's death, for it tells us in verse 14 that he wept before him. Wept before him. He was saddened in thinking about the death of Elisha. He shed real tears. Evidently, the king got quite physically close to Elisha as he wept. The ESV says he wept over him. The, uh, excuse me, the ESV says he wept before him. The NAS says he wept over him. And the King James has the most literal translation when it says that he wept over his face. He wept over his face. It gives you the impression that the tears of the king actually fell on the face of Elisha as he wept in thinking about Elisha's death. And the king showed a lament over Elisha's death. For it says that in verse 14, the end that crying, he said, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. We might ask the question, why would a sinful king, whose life is characterized by doing evil, be emotionally concerned about the death of Elisha? Remember what the scriptures said about this king in verse 11. It said, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. So here is this king who was very active in false worship and yet comes down to pay homage to Elisha and actually laments and weeps over the concept of his death. What did the king have in mind in that statement? Well, let me point out two things. First, one thing is absolutely certain, and that is the words of the king are the exact words of lament that Elisha had used when Elijah was departing from Elisha and this world. Back in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, when Elisha had asked Elijah for a double portion of his spirit, Elijah then replied and said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated two of them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind in heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw them no more. It's the exact wording of the king at the time of anticipation of Elisha's death. The text intends us to think about Elisha's death and homegoing in conjunction with that of Elijah's. There were some strong dissimilarities in the homegoing of these two saints. When Elijah went home to be with the Lord, Elijah was in good health. The very day that he was taken, he walked miles and miles and miles. In contrast, 
we have Elisha, who is sick and is on his deathbed, referring to his sickness that is going to end in death, speaks of physical decline and being infirmed. He was weak when Elijah was strong. Elijah did not actually die, but rather was taken up alive into heaven, where Elisha does die and is buried in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 20. So Elisha died and they buried him. What I think that we need to understand from this account is that their end is quite different, and yet both are greatly used by the Lord. How one dies is a part of God's sovereign plan, and God has a purpose in how, when, and where, and in what condition a person dies. Not all death experiences are the same. As we think about Moses, according to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7, it says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. So here is Moses, dies at 120, and his eyesight is still perfect, and he is physically strong. Whereas Joshua who dies 10 years younger than Moses. We read of him in Joshua 23, verse 1, where it says of him that he waxed old and was stricken in age. So Joshua did decline. Joshua did experience physical weakness. Two very godly saints used by God, but the circumstances surrounding their death was quite different. Matthew Henry says this, and I quote, the spirit of Elijah rested on Elisha, and yet he is not sent for to heaven in a fiery chariot as Elijah was, but goes the common road out of the world. If God honors some above others who are yet not inferior in gifts and graces, who should find fault? May he not do what he wills with his own, end quote. The point is that there is no common denominator other than the fact that one enters the presence of God and that God is gracious in the death of his saints. One may die in their sleep. Others may struggle and have very difficult days. Some who have a declining illness for years. It does not speak to the character of the individual. It is not that as long as you live this righteous and holy and godly life, then you are going to enter his presence in a life of ease. Nor does it mean that if you're unfaithful or you are not doing what God would have you to do, that then the last days of your life are filled with turmoil. These men, both godly, have very, very different ends. And yet we're going to find that both are going to be in the presence of God. And God is going to bless and use them. We chose the call to worship this morning as a reminder that the death of all of God's saints are precious in his eyes. And we can be thankful for that great truth and know that he's going to minister to us. 
But there is uh, one important takeaway that, that we need to keep in mind as we think about the laments king over uh, Elisha's death. For it is not uncommon that religious figures are honored in their deaths for their influence upon a nation. This king recognized the influence of Elisha upon the kingdom. There have been many notable religious leaders that have received great accolades by those in power at their death. Think, for example, the death of Billy Graham. Former presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton traveled to Charlotte to pay their respects while Billy Graham's body lay in repose. Then at the funeral service, the then President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, attended the funeral service. Charles Spurgeon died in 1892. London was in mourning. Nearly 60,000 people came to pay homage during the three days his body lay in state at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Some 100,000 lined the streets as a funeral parade two miles long followed his hearse from the tabernacle to the cemetery. Flags flew at half mass, and shops and pubs were closed. The nation honored Charles Spurgeon when he died. Martin Luther King Jr. at his funeral. There were many prominent politicians, too many to list, but both the candidates for the Democratic and the Republican uh, presidency were there. Movie stars, musicians, writers, poets, all were in attendance at his funeral. And since that day, a national day has been established to commemorate and remember the death of Martin Luther Jr. My point is that religious leaders can have a tremendous impact upon a nation. And that impact often is recognized at their death. But with that impact comes a question. What is going to happen to the nation of Judah now that Elisha is about to die? Elisha had been greatly used by God to bring protection to the nation when Elisha was able to reveal the plans of the enemy and armies were sent to intersect. When God used him to, to bring an army into the very capital city and to be captured, only to be released again as a demonstration of the power and grace of God. What would happen now that Elisha was about to die? Well, Elisha gives instruction to the king that will have profound significance for the future welfare of the nation. 
Elisha gives a step-by-step instructions to the king, which the king follows. In 2 Kings chapter 13, starting at verse 15, it says, Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. The king's response, so he took a bow and arrows. Verse 16, Elijah's instruction, and he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. King's response, and he drew it. Verse 16, and Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, symbolizing Elisha's identification with the act and the blessing. Third instruction, and then he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Fourth instruction, then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. The king did all that he was instructed to do by this this prophet, not knowing why or what the intent of this action was, but yet he did it anyway. Now Elisha gives some further instruction as to what this symbolic act meant. That is, the shooting of the arrow symbolized the military victory that God was going to grant the Israelites over the Syrians, verse 17. And he said, open the window and eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, here's the interpretation, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek, and you will have made an end of them. Now Elisha gives further instructions after having explained the significance of the arrow. The king is to take the arrows that represent victory and strike the ground with them. Verse 18. Strike, well, I'll read the verse. Then he said, take the arrows. And he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. The arrows that he is to take are the arrows that are still in the king's quiver. When he says strike the ground with them, this may mean the king was to grab the arrows and hit the ground with the arrows. Some point to the fact that it refers to the ground and not the floor, and they are in the inside of a building. This word can also be translated in such a way that it is consistent with what had just taken place. Namely, that as the king had shot the arrow out the window, which fell to the ground, now he is to do likewise with these other arrows, shooting them out the window, and they fall to the ground. I particularly think that that's what the instruction was, and that's what the king did, and it helps us better understand the angst of Elisha when the king no longer Uh, is smiting the ground. For notice, verse 18. He said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them, and he struck three times and stopped. Elisha is very upset when the king stops smiting the ground, verse 19. Then a man of God was angry with him and said, here is a unique phrase, referring to him as a man of God, and as a man of God, he's angered. He's angered. His is a righteous anger. His is a holy anger. His anger represents God's displeasure. Elisha says that the king should have been more persistent. 
It says in verse 19, you should have struck five or six times. It becomes clear that it is the king, if the king would have been more diligent or persevered in following the instructions of, the, of Elisha, he would have met with greater success and the nation would have been spared from much suffering. Notice the end of verse 19. You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. These arrows represented the destruction of Syria. He smote it three times, therefore they'll be delivered three times. But if you would have smitten them five or six times, then they would have been completely delivered. The issue in the text is not why he stopped, but the issue is the fact that he stopped. That is most crucial. Crucial. He should have kept striking or shooting, but he did not. And as a failure to continue, he missed out on the opportunity to completely deliver the nation. As we read a a passage such as this, you know, we, we might be very critical of the king and ask the simple question, well, why didn't he just keep smiting the ground? It seems so logical. It seems so sensible. We could argue that perhaps he didn't understand what the prophet was saying. Perhaps he lacked the faith. This is not a godly king. Maybe he didn't really believe that these arrows had great significance, and so he goes along with the instruction of Elisha, but soon tires of it. Maybe he's indifferent. There could be many, many answers to the why, but again, the important question, uh, the important issue is that he stops. He stops. And Again, it's easy for us to find fault with the king for stopping. I submit to you that one can only wonder what opportunities we miss out on by our not faithfully availing ourselves of the Lord's help, enablement, and promises. It is so easy to read the Old Testament and you know, kind of shake your head at the kings and their responses because it seems so obvious and so clear as to what they should do. And there's this tendency to wonder, why are they so unfaithful? Why are they so faithless? Why do they not practice more consistently what we know to be true? But again, one can only wonder what opportunities we miss out on by not faithfully availing ourselves of the Lord's help, enablement, and promises. Take, for example, God's instruction to us that we pray for our governmental leaders. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we read, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high places. Here is God's word to us. 
Here is our bow, here is our arrows, here is the command to shoot. I urge, therefore, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. I think the for all people is talking about how as you pray for the king, it has impact upon all the peoples. All the peoples of the earth are affected by king's decisions. So what should we do? We should pray. It goes on to say we're to pray for our government leaders so that we can live lives of faith without compromise of fear or persecution. 1 Timothy 2.2, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we're to pray for the kings so that we can live a godly and peaceful life. That peaceful life means without a conscience that's being seared, like uh, uh, Lot, who is living in Sodom, and his soul is vexed day by day because of the wickednesses around him, that we can live without compromise, that we can live with our allegiance to Christ being unchallenged by the inconsistencies of the governmental rules and laws and decisions. So we might live a godly life with peaceful, a quiet life, meaning without unrest, without insurrection, uh, without rebellion, but rather a godly and dignified life in every way. Then it goes on to say, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the all people there in the context are, are kings. He desires people from all stages of life, all positions, to come to a saving knowledge of God. But do we believe? Do we believe? Just as a Joash is to believe that by shooting an arrow out a window that a nation is going to be conquered, do we believe that through prayer... It's going to affect our world and even our government. Do we believe that our president can come to faith? A saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he does, that it would affect his rule and his understanding. Israel, time and time again, looks to their army, looks to their chariots, looks to their political system rather than God. And I tell you that there is nothing that has changed today. Do we pray for our nation? Do we pray for the leaders of this world believing that God can and does move and answer prayer? Or are we like Joash and maybe yes we offer a prayer from time to time, but we are as lackadaisical as he is. We are not persistent. We are not continuing on. We don't really believe that it's going to make a significant difference. 
One can only wonder, one can only wonder what our lack of prayer means for our nation and our world. We're told in the text that if he would have kept shooting, then Judah would have been completely delivered. But because he stopped, they are going to experience defeat and ruin. There's a sobering verse in Scripture that says, and I imagine most of it of you can complete it. So let me give you the first half, and you give me the second half. Good and loud. You have not because you ask not. We all know it. We all know it. It's not that we don't understand it. It's a reality. You have not because you ask not. What are we missing out on because we fail to ask? What are we missing out on in the righteousness of our nation? What are we missing out on on the safety? And we lament and we watch the TV and we agonize over all of the shootings and the deaths that are taking place. And our culture, our society is asking the question, what can we do about this? And everybody is trying to find a solution. Do we really believe that prayer is an integral part to that solution? Do we really believe that what needs to happen is that people's hearts and desires need to be transformed, need to be renewed, need to be completely changed? And for that change to take place, it means that they need to come to Christ. And in coming to Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. That it isn't just a matter of our conditioning or our community or our culture, but it's about a heart before God, one that's filled with anger and hatred as opposed to one that is filled with love and obedience. A heart that can only be changed through the gospel and a gospel that can only be effectual through God's sovereign working in which he calls us to pray in conjunction with that sovereign working and tells us that we have not because we ask not. This is a profound portion of scripture, but one that is easily able to wag our heads at what others fail to do, but take in store what we fail to do. Then we're given this unique occurrence of a man thrown into Elisha's tomb in 2 Kings 13, 20 and 21. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. A very peculiar portion of Scripture, but not a myth, a truth. A truth. 
But what we need to understand, first of all, that what is taking place is not normative. We are not to see something that is incredibly special about the bones of Elisha. That's not the takeaway. As uh, Gary uh, Ng in his commentary writes, we are not to think that to touch Elisha's bones did not automatically bring about life. It did not become normative practice in Israel to overcome death by placing a body next to Elisha and have their person come back to life. We're not to think that now there's going to be, you know, a train of Israelites bringing their dead and throwing them on to the bones of Elisha. And for generations, you know, people are now resuscitated and walking around dead. This is a one-off experience. This is unique. It is a statement to some point. And what is that point? It's a message about the life-giving power of God. God can give life to the dead. That which was true in Elijah's life. Remember, Eli, uh, excuse me, Elisha's life. Elisha was used to bring people back from the dead. Now, in his death, one is going to be raised as well. It's a message for a nation that was struggling. The incident occurred during a time when Israel was being raided and oppressed. According to verse 21, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. God was going to continue his work even though Elisha was dead and gone. It tells us in verse 22, Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned towards them, the nation of Israel, who were experiencing God's judgment for earlier weeks ago. We saw that God had raised up Haziel, that Haziel is God's servant, to bring destruction to Israel so that they would repent and turn back to the Lord. We find that God keeps his promises even after the death of his saints. Notice verse 23, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. God made a covenant. God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fathers that were dead, but yet lived on. Jesus said, I am of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says that he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Elisha is taken alive up into heaven. But Elijah, though he died and was placed in a tomb, was just as alive as Elijah. 
Elisha. Continued on. We can be assured that God's promises will come to pass while we live and after we die and yet into the future. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us heroes of the faith. And our text refers to Abraham. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this concerning Abraham and others. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age since she was considered faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were both descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers on the earth. And so the promises to Elisha are going to be fulfilled. In 2 Kings chapter 13, starting at verse 24, it says, So Hazel king of Syria died, and Ben-Hadad his son reigned in his stead. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoazak, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father by war. Now these words, three times, did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. Here is the fulfillment of all that God had promised and said. Three times, they beat and recovered the cities. And if you read earlier in the text, you find that at this point, the nation is so weakened that they're down to 50 chariots. 50 chariots. And yet three times, they're going to defeat a Syrian nation. Or God is able to do what he promises to do. His promises are not dependent upon people. His promises are to people. God can even raise the dead. 
and God does raise the dead. And our great hope is that we will be in his presence one day, alive, thriving, and well. But as we think of this age, as we think of our nation, as we think of our world, Jesus told us to pray. He gave us a model prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we are to pray. Jesus said, pray that God's will would be done on earth in the same way that it's done in heaven. That is completely fulfilled. That is unhindered. We're to pray for the unleashing of God's sovereign power. And God has given that responsibility to us every bit as much as when he said to Joash, shoot the arrows. Shoot the arrows. Pray for our nation. Pray for our leadership. And not just for our nation, but the kings, the leaders, the prime ministers, the rulers of this world. Even as we heard in Sunday school this morning how God used pagan leaders to deliver his people and to accomplish his purpose in the time of the exile. God is not limited. That's the point of the text. God is not limited. God can give life to the dead. God can change this world. And what he encourages us to do, what he commands us to do, what he exhorts us to do, what he implores us to do, is to pray. And I tell you, I believe that one of the detriments to our nation is that the church is focusing far too more on political answers than they are on a king of kings and Lord of Lords. Pray. Pray. May every news report that we hear of another shooting move us to pray for our nation. Pray for the gospel. Pray for the power of the Spirit of God to change hearts and lives that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. That's what the word says. May we know peace and quiet in our day as we pray for God to sovereignly rule in our leaders. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would help us. And Lord, I readily acknowledge that I need this message, I need this lesson, that I need to persevere in prayer. Lord, help me to be more faithful. Help me to be more believing. Lord, help me to see what we don't have because we don't ask. Oh Lord, we know the words, we can easily cite them, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So, Lord, 
increase our asking and increase our thinking. Move us to a place of not just head knowledge, but of heart action. May your word come alive to us. May it be more than just words on a printed page. May it not be like a tulip that is painted on the wall, but may it be a tulip that grows in a garden and flourishes. Oh, Lord, may your word dwell in us richly. That We understand that we appropriate, that we live out your word more consistently, more faithfully, believing more and more. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a careful distinction that has to be made when we consider God's sovereignty and fatalism. Fatalism says, case or all, say, well, whatever will be, will be. And we have absolutely no impact upon what is going to transpire in this world. But God in his sovereignty has told us that prayers impact this world, that he hears and he answers prayer. Never get to the place where God's sovereignty is understood as being contradictory to his commands for us to pray or to think that prayer is irrelevant. It's because God is sovereign that our prayers are meaningful. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.